All right, would you take your Bible, please, this morning and turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, you'll notice there's one in the pew rack in front of you. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, if you don't own a Bible, take that one home as our gift to you today. I want to, of course, uh, thank you for the time that Leslie and I have been away because I'm aware that it has changed your routines. It certainly has also changed the routines and the procedures of our staff team. And um, I know we've done a lot of welcoming and clapping here today, but I want to just say I've gone out on the web and watched all the guys preaching and, you know, listened to everything that everybody amongst the staff have had to take over while I've been gone. And they have done a stellar job. And so I invite you to thank Brian and the rest of the team for that. And uh, I've had a significant number of people come to me and say, you know, Wayne, we were doing all right without you. <laughs> That's all they've said. That's all they've said. <laughs> so uh, uh, let me tell you what we've, what we've done since the first, of, uh, first week of February. We spent a week, uh, pardon me, we spent a month visiting my family in Australia. And had a wonderful time of rest there. The focus of our sabbaticals here at First Christian Church is to get some rest and then to do some study. So we, uh, we spent a week, uh, pardon me, a week, a month in Australia uh, kind of just catching our breath. And then we were home here in, in Illinois for four or five days. And then we got on a plane and flew to Israel. And that's where we started our studies. And we were there for uh, uh, right at a month and then went from there to Great Britain, there for a week where I did some preaching in some ministry spots that Leslie and I had from many years ago. And I realized that when I say, I'm not, I am not in any way nonchalant when I say we've been to Australia and to Israel, and for many in the room, you've been to neither place, let alone to Great Britain. And you go, I'm never going to have the resources, or I'm never going to get there. I, I, please understand, I am deeply... Uh, indebted for the privilege of what we've experienced over the last few months. And uh, Leslie and I particularly went with this understanding that we would be your eyes and your ears in those places. What could we learn that we could then bring back to First Christian Decatur and that we could be used by God for the life of our congregation? So thank you for the privilege of going and for the time away and for the resources that helped us get there. And in light of all that, in light of particularly what we learned in Israel, today is not quite a sermon in the same way that we would normally, I would normally preach. More so, I want to have a chat with you and then use this chat as the basis for a series of sermons dealing with the presence of God. And I, I want to give you some responses today as we look at Scripture. It's going to take us a while to get to, the, to 1 Kings 8. I want to give you some responses to what we saw and what, how it played into what we see in Scripture. I, want to give, I, I don't want to give a travel log simply showing you know, family slides on the wall. That would be not appropriate at all, let alone Mother's Day. But I do want to talk with you about a particular encounter I had with God at the Western Wall and use that as the basis for a sermon series on this presence of God. But before I get to the Western Wall, a few experiences and responses. We uh, arrived in Israel uh, in the first week of March. Bless your hearts, it was wintertime here, it wasn't there. I'm sorry. No, I'm not at all, but nonetheless. 
we, we arrived in Israel, and after kind of getting acclimated to where we were living, we, uh, a few days, a couple days later, we ended up down at the Dead Sea, and at the, at the, right off the Dead Sea is a mountain called the Masada Mountain. Some of you may be familiar with this. There's been television series about it. And um, it, it, at the very top of Mount Masada, uh, covering that whole plateau that you can see on that photo, is a very large palace that Herod built during the time of Jesus. Now, it's in ruins now, but it's fascinating to see what he built there and what his slaves carted up the mountain to build up there. So we, it's 1,300 feet to go from the base all the way to the top. And so we went to Masada with the intention of going to the top. Now, to give you a perspective of what it actually, how big it is, if you look on the left-hand side of the large photograph, you see a clump of buildings. Those buildings are about five stories tall. So they look tiny in the photograph. But those are five stories tall. And there's a gondola that goes up to the very top right-hand side of the, um, of the mountain. And it, you can see the kind of gray stuff at the top. That gondola goes up about every 10 minutes. I went up to the lady at the ticket booth and said, I'd, we, my wife and I would like to go up to the top of Masada. And she's, I think, was like equivalent of about $15 a piece to go up there. And I said, How, can we go in the gondola with these tickets? And she said, well, if you want to go in the gondola, it was going to be like another 10 bucks, or you can walk. <laughs> so I said, well, tell me about the walk. I like to keep 10 bucks in my pocket if I don't have to spend it, right? And uh, she said, well, people do it every day. It's not a big deal. How long does it take? Well, it takes maybe 30, 35, maybe at the top 45 minutes. I'm thinking, well, you know, we're in fairly decent shape and 45-minute walk. Any of us can do We could do this. We walk a lot. So I said, we'll walk. I'm thinking this is going to be fairly easy. We, got, we walked from that building to the base of the mountain, and we were about three minutes in, and I realized that lady... She lied. (laughs) She lied through her teeth. This was no walk. This was not even a brisk hike. This was climbing. It, (laughs) you know what made it worse was about every 10 minutes that gondola would pass over the top of our head. (laughs) And I'm going, 10 bucks, I could be up there. And I know what those people in that gondola are thinking as they look, look at those poor suckers down below. They should have paid the 10 bucks. Yeah, right 30, 35 minutes. It took us an hour and a half. It was, it was probably the most arduous thing that Les and I have done in a long time. I mean, at points she's dragging me up the hill. And that's not a hill. That's the wrong. It is, it is a climb 1,300 feet up. And <laughs> the sad part is you get to the top and you go to the other side of the mountain. And you learn there's a, there's a blinking path over there that's only 200 feet up. <laughs> she didn't tell us about that either, I tell you. Nonetheless, we took the gondola down. I forked out the 10 bucks. So <laughs> it took us an hour and a half to get up there and then 30 minutes at the top panting and trying to catch our breath and being ready. So we had a wonderful experience there. So a lot of things. And, you know, we were there not as part of a tour group. We went and rented an apartment. In, in uh, Jerusalem, in a, in a suburb of Jerusalem called, catch this, Mount Zion. I would say it's probably the original Mount Zion. So th- those of you who were, who were Mount Zion, you know, 
residence and you're always on my tail. Hey, Wayne, why don't you and Leslie move out to the bright side of Decatur and come live with us in Mount Zion? We lived there for a while. We came back to Decatur. So there you go. No. <laughs> okay, so here, here, we weren't there in a tour. We lived in an apartment in Mount Zion. We had a car. And Mount Zion, if you could think of it this way, is about a 25-minute walk from the old city of Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the photo of Leslie that you see with the blurry uh, old city in the background, that's on the edge of the, of the precipice, if you will, of Mount Zion, overlooking a, a small valley called the Valley of Gehenna, and then the old city is in the background. As a matter of fact, the photo on the left-hand side, on the lower left, is this, from the same position, just with the city in focus. And so we would walk through that valley in the days that we spent most of our time in Jerusalem. If, if you think about being there a month, we probably spent two and a half to three weeks there. And each day we would walk into the old city of Jerusalem probably three or four times just to experience what was going on in there. And walk through that little, it's a little valley. It's called the Valley of Gehenna. In reality, it's a dip in the road. But can I tell you, if you remember Scripture, it's a place of great trouble within Scripture. Because that valley is the site where apostate Israelites and even some kings of Judah got involved in some horrible, horrible practices that were a real affront to God. Read with me in Second Chronicles. It's going to be on the screen. Ahaz, who's a king of Judah, followed the ways of the king of Israel and made idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned, he burned sacrifices in the valley of Gehenna. Now remember, Jerusalem, you saw how close it was. He's come out of Jerusalem down into this little valley. He sacrificed his children in the fire, engaging in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Can you imagine? Right there where we're walking is where children were burned in sacrificial deaths. A few generations later, same thing, Manasseh, also a king of Judah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He sacrificed his children in, the, in fire in the valley of Gehenna, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord. Right there, right where we were. I've got to tell you that as I read scripture, that passage of scripture in the past, I'd always think of the Valley of Gehenna as this large vista outside, way outside the city. Had no idea that it was right there at the wall, right outside the city gates. You know, when we think of valleys in our country, we, last week I was, long story, as I was concluding my sabbatical, I was with a bunch of pastors, an event down in Nashville. And it took hours to drive through the Tennessee River Valley. I mean, it's a, it covers both Kentucky and Tennessee. When we think of valleys, we think of large, you know, hundreds of miles maybe. This is a dip in the road. We walked through it many times, from walking from Mount Zion over to the old city, up and down the hill, not a 30-minute walk. And I have an observation about that. Jerusalem is the place of worship. Mount Zion is where we were living. Kind of like us here today. This is our place of worship, and you have a place where you live here in the community. But the place in between, the place where we walk from where we, and the places where we go during the days between our homes and our places of worship, they can be places where we make disastrous moves away from God and righteousness. And if we, if we get stuck in those valleys... 
We can make sacrifices of our lives and sacrifices of our stuff that can cause us, frankly, to create a valley of Gehenna, a valley of death, even right where we're walking every day. I mean, if you think about it, to understand the geography just a little bit, from the vantage point of where that photo is taken is at the top end of the valley of Gehenna. Mount Zion, where we were living, is where those those houses are, apartments are on the other side. This is taken right from the wall of Jerusalem's old city. And if you walk down through the, through the, you know, the, the V of that valley, from where that photo is taken, a mile, maybe a mile and a half at the most, you know what's the end of that? The Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we have, you know, for those of us who are Christians and have studied the New Testament, we have this, these idyllic understandings of the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. These are places of tremendous spiritual importance to Christians. Jesus taught his disciples and crowds on the Mount of Olives. At the Garden of Gethsemane, he had prayer. And he, I mean, on the, this is on the nights he was leading up to when he died. He's in that garden praying. And we know those places are of great spiritual importance. But you come out of there and within, within a mile you can walk through the valley of death. You can walk through the places of detestable sacrifices. It's quite obvious to me that we can have places of worship. We have places where we live and they might be righteous. And from time to time we may have these intense spiritual practices and spiritual moments. And yet evil can be very, very close to us. If we're not careful, we'll walk right into it. It's closer than we think. As a matter of fact, may I remind you that evil and the evil one has an agenda for your destruction. The apostle Peter put it this way, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Let us be careful where we walk daily. Even a little dip in the road can be disastrous. I'm quite aware of this too today. If you're living in the valley of Gehenna, if you're in a place where you've made sacrifices of life and of your stuff that are wrong and evil and you've got, you're stuck there, it's not necessarily a long walk to get out of there. The place of worship is literally just up the hill. You can see it from where you are today. The place of being right with God is just up the hill, guys. It's just up that little place where you say, I'm willing to allow Jesus Christ to not only be something, someone that I acknowledge in my head, but I acknowledge him in my heart as the Son of God. It's that close. It's this distance, 12 inches. Many things that we saw while we are in Israel, I'll bring to you in the coming days, because I'm using this little chat, if you will, today, as a springboard to a six-week sermon series focusing on the presence of God. What does it mean when we say we have the presence of God within us? How do we access it? And um, My experience would say this. If you don't know the presence of God in your life today, you can get out of the valley pretty quickly. And you can step into a relationship with Him in Jesus Christ. Before I um, bring us to this whole business about the presence of God, though, and we will get to 1 Kings 8. Um, let me tell you, uh, if you will, an, another observation from the nation of Israel. And that is, we saw a lot of brokenness. A lot of strange things. And we went to, I would say, most of the holy sites throughout the nation. And um, I would describe it this way. Though I, I, in doing so, I don't want to be offensive to anyone who's gone and not had my experience. But 
some of you have gone and had these intense spiritual moments. I can't say that I had that at all, the holy sites. Because from my perspective, the sites as you walk into them often feel like, and this is the language that I've used, Disney World for Christians. Disney World for Christians run amok. Here's why. Israel is full of thousands of tourist buses, Christians coming on, on spiritual pilgrimages. And they, they, they have a checklist of sites that they want to see within seven to ten days. And so they've got to make three or four, five or six of those sites every day. They're up early. They've got to put their suitcases out in the hallway the night before so they're packed on the bus. The breakfast at seven, they're on the road till nine at night, till the sun goes down. And they've got, they get to a site, they've got, you know, the, the, the tourist will, tour guide will say, you've got 30 minutes to see the site. So you see 40 people pile off, of, you know, come spilling out of a bus and they're, they're moving hurriedly to a site where they've got a cell phone and a, and a camera and they're trying to get their picture. And frankly, there's pushing and shoving and a lot of carrying on that I go is anything but Christian. That was my observation. Because we would go to sites and we'd sit for three or four hours. instead, of, And we'd watch these bus after bus come and people have got their 28 minutes and they've got to be back on the bus. Um, it's anything but, the, uh, anything but what Jesus would expect from Christians in my opinion. We saw a lot of that brokenness. A case in point is here in the photo you see behind me, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is in the old city of Jerusalem, the northern part of the old city of Jerusalem. It's an imposing building that is built over what archaeologists believe is the true place of Golgotha and the true place where Jesus was buried and rose again. I know we have the garden tomb, and that's a whole other story of how that was identified in the late 1800s by a layperson, some vision. He said this is where Jesus was buried. More importantly, the archaeologists believe this is really where Jesus was buried. It has this very large building. Inside the building, you see there's that um, square kind of rectangular building with a cupola on top. And that is a shrine built over the tomb itself. So you're inside there. And um, the mobs inside the church were exactly that, mobs. If you go at the wrong time, you will wait for hours to get to the spots that are within inside the church. Either be the spot of Golgotha, you go up this very narrow, very, very steep incline of stairs to the top and you wait in line where one person at a time can get in to see, to see the spot of Golgotha because it's completely covered over with marble and gold and, and you have to climb or crawl literally under a table or an altar, crawl in, see the spot and then walk out. I mean, crawl backwards out. Same thing to see the tomb itself. You have to stand in line in lines that go round and round that shrine in police lines, you know, barricades like, like Disneyland. And you'll wait for hours to do that. And then it's only three or four people at a time have to again crawl down under a small opening. They go in. You can kneel at the kind of the, the, the stone slab and then you have to make your way out again, crawling out. And strange stuff going on in that building. Uh, uh, we were there a number of times. And we'd go and we'd go, okay, we're not going in there today because it's absolutely crowded. Again, it's a 35, in this case, maybe a 40-minute walk from where we were living. And so we're in, we got to about 5 o'clock one afternoon, and there was hardly anybody in, in line, like 10, 15 people maybe. And so we got in line, and there was a fellow behind us, right behind me. And I looked back, and he was involved in the strangest practice. He had a handkerchief and some sort of sharp instrument in his hand. I don't know what the instrument was, but as we came to each kind of relic or each point along the way, he would cut himself and take that handkerchief and dab it with blood and then put blood all along the handrails and 
going inside the tomb, putting blood. And I'm thinking, well, this is not very, you know, hygiene is a problem for me right now. But beyond that, I understand what he was trying to do. He's trying to identify with the suffering of Jesus Christ. I get it. But he had, oh, maybe a dozen cuts across the back of his hand. And he's bleeding and he's, it's dripping. I mean, just, I'm, I'm trying to think, okay, I'm going to have this spiritual moment at the tomb. And all I'm thinking, i got this guy bleeding right behind me. I mean, it was, the spirituality disappeared pretty quickly. And frankly, all I remember of that event is this guy's really got a bad picture of Christianity. He's got a really bad picture of what Jesus' suffering was all about. Jesus' suffering took place so that we wouldn't have to suffer. And this man's trying to work his way to some sort of salvation. He's forgotten and doesn't understand the whole idea of grace. We saw in that building another example of um, Christianity run amok. You know, perhaps you're aware that that building is um, it's shared as the Jerusalem headquarters for a bunch of different religious traditions. Uh, you've got the Greek Orthodox in there, the Roman Catholic, the Armenian Apostolic, and some other Eastern Orthodox traditions, including the Coptics and the Ethiopians and so forth. And they don't always get along. They're quite territorial. Now and then they break out in fights. In 2002, for example, here's one case in point. Uh, there was a Coptic monk sitting on a chair in the sunshine on a very hot day, and he was supposed to stay there. And he noticed just a few feet over, he could move his, feet, his chair over and be in the shade. So he moved his chair into the shade, and the um, Ethiop- this Coptic monk moved, he didn't realize, into the territory that belonged to the um, Ethiopian monks. And they thought he was trying to expand the Coptic monk territory, and they got in a fight. I mean, it was a fracas, and they had to call on the police, and by the time it was all done, 11 monks were sent to the hospital and had to be hospitalized. Well, there's Christianity working really well. I mean, who are we kidding? We saw the brokenness like that. That struggle, we saw it. In a, in a minor way, we, we went down this really long flight of stairs around and about. And, I mean, we, we probably were down three or four floors into the basement of that church. Probably, I would suspect, about as low as you can go. And there were some tombs down there you could see. And there's candles. And it was right at the top of the hour where it was obvious that that room's territory was changing from one group of Christians to another group. And this monk came flying down the stairs, robes, you know, kind of caught in the breeze behind him as he came down the stairs. I watched him. And came down. He blew out all the candles that the previous territorial people, leaders, had placed there. He blew them all out, pulled them out, and he put his own candles in. And I'm thinking, my, oh my, oh my. Us Christians are not even getting along here, let alone what's taking place between the faiths outside of Christianity. When you've got Christians, Muslims, and Jews living in Jerusalem and living in the old city, there's a map of the old city. It's divided into four or really five parts. You have the Temple Mount, which is operated by the Muslims. That's where, this, where the Jewish uh, temple used to be that Solomon built. But apart from that, you have in the, in the northwest uh, corner, you have the Christian quarter. That's where the Roman Catholic, all the various Christian groups have to live. Except if you're Armenian, you get to live in the, in the um, southwest corner. 5,000 people living up in the north West corner, 5,000 down below. Armenian quarters because Armenia was the first country that ever became Christian. And as soon as they became Christian, their king said, I want to, that's about third, fourth century. I want a place in Jerusalem. He went and bought a quarter of Jerusalem. And the Armenians have owned it ever since. 5,000 people live there. You have 5,000 people living in the Jewish quarter. 25,000 people living 
in the Muslim quarter. If 40,000 people, 40,000 people crammed into that area one mile square with 36 acres of it taken out for the Temple Mount. And so they don't always get along. Um, and, and you can see it not only in the city, you can see it outside the city. Right outside the city, going down the dip at the bottom of the Valley of Gehenna, you're, you're dealing with um, the Mount of Olives and the Garden, the Garden of Gethsemane from your perspective, like this. Mount of Olives on the right, the garden right here at the bottom of the mountain. And uh, prior to the 1967 war, that area was controlled by the Jordanians. I'd always assumed that the Mount of Olives was this wonderful place where there were olive trees and everything. It was when Jesus was alive. But for the last 3,000 years, it's been an operating cemetery. So all that kind of sand-colored stuff you see, those are all above-the-ground coffins made of, made of stone. You can still be buried there if you're Jewish. And so there are thousands and thousands of coffins there. And prior to the 1967 war, the Jordanians wanted to um, kind of make their claim. So they built a hotel called the Seven Arches Hotel at the top of the mountain. And as they were looking around for building materials, particularly for paving stones and everything, you know what they did? They took the headstones of all the Jewish graves and made them the paving stones for inside the hotel. And in the walkways, they took the tops off the coffins, their stone tops, and made the walkways outside the hotel all those coffin tops in an effort to offend the Jews. And then an even greater affront, they had all their construction workers then use those open graves as latrines. It's a place of great chaos. It's a place where you go, I don't know how this is all, how, how is there ever going to be peace? My observation is this, Jerusalem is a city of religious chaos that will only be solved by the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the only way it's going to be fixed. As a matter of fact, the, the Muslims are quite concerned about any coming of a Messiah. On the east, Jesus is, we know from Scripture, supposed to come down in the second coming, come down the Mount of Olives and go through the Eastern Gate. The Jews still believe their Messiah is coming. He's going to come down the Mount of Olives and go through the Eastern Gate. And so some 12 centuries ago when, when um, Islam took control of the Temple Mount, they walled up the Eastern Gate saying, we're going to prevent the Messiah from coming. I want to tell you this. No stone wall is going to prevent Jesus Christ from coming back. You got that? All right. Now, again, much of the strife of, of those three different faiths coming together and the strife within the, within the church itself, it all comes to a focus on the Temple Mount. It's the place where Solomon used to, where Solomon's temple used to be. Now there's a mosque up there. As a matter of fact, can we go back one slide? I'm sorry, Barb, my fault. That gold dome you see is a mosque on top of the Temple Mount. Um, that's been there for 12 centuries. The only remaining part of the, um, of the original Jewish temple is what's known, <clears throat> excuse me, the only part that's still left is what's known as the Western Wall. Go to the next slide, Barb. Thanks. <clears throat> excuse me. And that temple that Solomon built, I want us to look at this in, in 1 Kings chapter 8. Because I, I am going to get to the presence of God, I promise you, okay? Here's what happened. When he built the temple and the wall, the, where the western wall, where I stood at the western wall, less than I stood there on a number of occasions, put our hands out and touched it, 3,000 years old. Verse 6, 1 Kings chapter 8, 
The priest brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. So after the place is built, they're set, now setting up, if you will, the sanctuary where worship is going to take place. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and overshadowed the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from the outside, the holy place. They're still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tab- tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb. What are the two stone tablets, do you remember? Ten Commandments. You, you saw this when you saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay, basically, this is what we're talking about here, okay? And then verse, verse, um, verse 10. When the, Israel, when the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests couldn't perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. What's all that about? Remember, the Israelites left Egypt. They're slaves. They leave Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. How did they know where to go? There was a cloud that would be above them that represented and was, in fact, the presence of God. When Moses needed to speak to God, that cloud would come down the mountain. He would go up and he would visit with God inside the cloud. That cloud that was the presence of God. And when they built the temple, that cloud came down and sat and lived inside the Holy of Holies in the temple. If you could think of kind of generally speaking from your perspective, the audience is out there where you are. There's a veil, a big curtain between you and the Holy of Holies. That's, there's more to it than that, but in a nutshell, that's it. And so you've got God on this side of this veil. The scriptures give us a description of that curtain that it was very heavy when they actually put it up. It took 300 priests. It was so heavy to lift it up. It was four inches thick, made of multicolored fabric. They said they could put teams of horses on either end and try and tear it. It wouldn't tear. And that kept the presence of God away from the people so that the presence of God wouldn't kill them. It was so scary. The priest, The high priest got to go in there once a year and ask for forgiveness of sins for the nation. But for the most part, there was this separation between the people and the presence of God. I remember standing for the first time, just a few weeks ago, at the bottom of the Western Wall and praying. You've seen the Jews kind of bobbing their heads like this. I'm there. I've got my hand against the wall. And it occurs to me, man, up about 60, 70 feet to the top of the wall and over just a little bit from there, God lived there. God lived right there. Friends, I'm telling you, it was overwhelming. I I understand Jesus walked everywhere, but and and we got the holy sights and the craziness we'd seen and experienced, but right there, God was there. And then I was reminded of what we see in Matthew 27. Just as Jesus died from noon till three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he dies. He gave up his spirit. And I love what the gospel writers, there's this small comment that if you don't catch it, you don't realize what's being said. They've got Jesus dying. And what's the first thing they mention? At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And then we go on and we think about the earth shaking, the earthquake, and the rock splitting, and the tombs breaking over, and all that sort of stuff. And we wonder about that. And we miss that little line that the curtain was torn in two. What, did that, what happened? 
That curtain at Jesus' death that separated the people from God's presence was ripped open by the invisible force, if you will, of Jesus' death. And that cloud was no longer... (laughs) Catch this. That cloud was no longer confined to that space about 60 feet up and a few feet over from where I stood. Yeah, that was a powerful moment to realize that, but it was even more powerful to remember this, that the presence of God is not limited to that place up there. But now through the work of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God is available for you, for me, for all of humanity. Jesus Christ, that, his death caused that curtain to be torn in two. And I kind of have this, this picture as that crack first happens at the top, if you will, and goes like this, and that cloud's starting to come out. Can you imagine it? Steven Spielberg would do it really, really well. It comes out, and I've got to ask you this question. Do you know that the presence of God is with you this week? The presence of God is with you whether you live in Mount Zion or not. Whether you're in worship in Jerusalem or at First Christian Church. Whether you're in the middle of an intense spiritual moment down at the Garden of Gethsemane or on the Mount of Olives. Or if you're in the Valley of Gehenna, the Spirit of God is available to you today. Would you access yourself to it? Because it's wanting to leak out all over you. We're going to give you an opportunity to experience that this way. We're going to step into communion. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we're going to ask you to do this. If you're serving communion, you better go and get ready because we've got some things to cover here. And we're going to do communion differently today. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, we want you to do this. If you're not a follower of Christ... I would suggest that maybe in the way in which we're going to do this, you could this very moment say, you know, I'm going to move from having a head knowledge of Jesus Christ to a heart knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we're going to, we're going to ask you to come to stations around the room to take communion today. And if you're unable to do that because you can't walk effectively, we'll get to you, okay? Let us know. But you're going to be directed to come. And as when, when Les and I were in, in Israel, we went to a, a little... Um, Arab market, and it's a long story, um, and we bought 1,500 olive wood communion cups for this service right now today, and we want you to take them home. So you're going to come, and you're going to be served bread, and you're going to be served some, the cup, take the cup home. But when you first come, I want you to come with a different understanding that instead of coming and taking the bread, you normally pick the bread out, I want you to receive the bread. So today, like you see in the picture, bring your hand like this, Okay. And the servers are actually going to put the bread in your hand to acknowledge that you are, you are receiving the presence of God. And in fact, if you could put it this way, you're receiving the broken body of Jesus Christ. Here's what I discovered in Israel. The place is broken. I mean, not from a social point of view. They, they, frankly, it's doing quite well in terms of economically and so forth and so on. They've struggled like the rest of the world, but it's not, it's not like it's, it's not a third world country in any ways. But the city is fractured by religious strife. You can see it on the screen behind me. And and the body of Christ in Jerusalem is broken badly. And if there's ever a moment when we say, okay, how sad is it the broken body of Christ, Jesus' body dying on, on Calvary, has not yet rectified the church in Jerusalem. And if we ever needed a moment where we say we need God's presence. It's in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our lives that sometimes get stuck in the valley of Gehenna. We say, oh God, 
Forgive me in Jesus Christ. Allow me to experience your presence. I'm so glad it's not stuck up over there, up and over there. But leak it out. Let it just anoint me, just kind of soak all over me today. And as you receive today, may that be your experience. Let me pray for you. Lord God, in these next few minutes, as we step into communion, we want to experience your work in our lives. We pray, God, that you would forgive us of our sins in the name of Jesus. We thank you that he came in such a powerful way and his body was broken. It was broken for us and for our brokenness. Lord God, in this moment, as we receive the bread and the cup, we acknowledge that his body was given for us. His blood was shed for our salvation. And we eat and we drink today in remembrance of him. Speak to us in these next few minutes, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So you're going to be asked to file out of your pews and come as you're able. You'll notice this today there are Kleenexes in all the pews. That's not because I thought that today's sermon was going to be particularly emotional. More so it's so that when you get back to your pew, you can grab one of those Kleenex and you can wrap up that cup, okay? So we don't want extra juice spilling everywhere for your, for your sake. In ladies' mothers' purses, it's not a good thing, right? So... You can, you can take the juice at the stations or you can take, it back, take the cup back to your um, pew and have a moment of reflection if you wish in prayer. It's up to you, but take, take the cups home with you as we, as we eat and as we drink. And the worship team is going to lead us through some things while you and I together experience the presence of God.